0: James, wow! I want to start out this morning by reading a few things out of Proverbs 16, just to just to get a little flavor of, of things. You know, in the Proverbs, uh, a lot of people commentators through the years, and, and I, I agree to to a sort. They often call the uh, the book of James the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's with this emphasis is on lifestyle matching our profession. I think that's an age-old problem, uh, not only Christianity, but with the church. Uh, you know, we are helping the world ridicule us. We are helping the world give us a black eye. We are helping the world uh, slap Jesus just a little bit more in the face. And the book of James is one that gives credible uh logic, if you will, to the outcome of this profession we claim to have. Book of Proverbs is wonderful. Uh, I just want to want to go through a few things. You don't even have to turn there. I just want to briefly mention something. I thought it was a fitting way maybe to get into this epistle. Because again, so many do. Uh, you know, I heard one commentator that was in the 1700s say that the book of James is is... A compilation, if you will, of sermon notes, <laughs> and he went on to explain. In other words, you each part of the book of James must be looked at in, in view of the whole of the Word of God, and especially of our profession of this glorious God. Uh, Paul and James also refer to Jesus as the glorious one, the Lord of glory. James mentions in his letter, probably one of the first of the epistles twice of the second coming of Christ. He mentions being born again. He talks about anger. He talks about the tongue. He talks about hypocrisy. There's so much in here. And yet if we look at the book of Proverbs, we can see that this life that produces fruit, a genuine life in Jesus Christ will produce fruit. You know, the preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. I'm reading from things in Proverbs 16 really quick. Just listen to these. <laughs> Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. By the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. He who heeds the word wisely will find good, and whoever trusts in the Lord will. Blessed is he. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end thereof is the ways of death. He who is slow to anger. We talk about anger a lot as we go through this epistle. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules a spirit better than he who takes a sea. The word of God, rightly understood, produces fruit. That's what Paul said to the Thessalonians, one of his earliest epistles. So from early on in the church, it has been taught, Jesus taught, it. you will know them by their fruits. Don't call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say. We have all things in the word of God that, that point to the fact that if we profess this God, if we profess to know him, there's going to be a change and a result of that. If, if most ancient historians, including Josephus, is right, James has written about between 45 and 50 AD. That was very, very early in the era. If Jesus rose from the grave and ascended about 33, 34, something like that, thereabouts. I don't want to pinpoint, I just want to, to make a point home that this was very, very soon after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of him. James was most likely the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a true testimony of transformation of this individual's life, as well as Peter's, but this was a little bit uh, more unique. James, as well as the rest of Jesus' natural brothers, according to John chapter 7, didn't believe in him. They were ridiculing him. You want to be made known to the public? Hey, go out and make yourself known. So his own natural brothers did not believe in him. Can you imagine that? After the the resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Paul said, went to James. He appeared to him. I believe that he could do no else, but become a not a half-hearted, not a uh, skeptical, but a whole-hearted believer and follower of his half-brother, who demonstrated beyond a refutable fact that he was God during his lifetime, but did something that the world Still marvels up, he rose bodily and physically from the dead. So out of a natural descendant, if you will, or a natural group of brothers that didn't believe in him, James did. What a testimony. James is also called in the early church simply the righteous one or the righteous man. Very interesting life that he led. One thing I, I have always marveled at is that he, like all the other inspired writers of the Word of God, pulled no punches. I love the fact that when James starts out in this epistle, he doesn't say, hey, you know what, I lived with them. I, he simply stated he was a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Affirmation of absolute deity. Nowhere in the Bible can we take a scripture apart from the context of the whole where it has God and Jesus Christ in the same verse and try to separate it. This is an affirmation of deity, as we will see in verse 2, chapter 1. Or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1. An absolute affirmation of deity. And again, it amazes me that he was one of the uh, family of Jesus, of his brothers, natural brothers, that did not believe in him. We also see that James is one of the pillars of the early church that Paul talked about in Galatians 2, verse 9. He seemed to, when the persecution came, Stephen got stoned and the the Christians were dispersed, just like Jesus said they would, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the other ends of the earth, just in that pattern, we somehow reason James stayed after and became a pillar of this church that... Uh, well, of 120 disciples in the upper room, or not in the upper room, excuse me, but after Jesus uh, had risen from the dead. So that might explain by some of the dispersed abroad, we don't know, but what we do know, <laughs> if we take the Bible in context, we can take James, the book of James, and it's a good idea to take James and read it several times rapidly, if you will, to get the flavor, and then go back to J- or Acts chapter 15 where we see the crux of what James is talking about, faith and works, when we have religious leaders accepting Christ as a Messiah. we talked about this many times. Putting a burden on the church, saying, well, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, but you must do this and this. You must be circumcised and keep the law to be saved. And it's James is the one that gives the final pronunciation after Peter speaks And says, no, that the Gentiles were saved just like they are through grace. It's James is the one that puts the stamp of of this. You read it in Acts Acts chapter 15. So taken in context, James is very rich in practicality. You want to be a practical Christian? You want to know what it's like to to hit the rubber meets the road? James gives that flavor. And like I said, very early, James was writing this before Paul's epistles, uh, most of them hit. We know it was written before uh, Galatians and Romans. So you see, God is such a marvelous—well, uh, He's so marvelous that He can take everything, different personalities, different parts of the Scripture, different parts of the era, and put it all together to state one fact: mankind is doomed without Jesus Christ. And once mankind is born again in Jesus Christ, it produces something. It produces a child of God. Wow. James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad or in the dispersion. I believe James not only writes with a, with a compassionate heart to those Jews that, in that time, to become a Christian was a death sentence. It was a it was a form of ridicule. These people had trials to begin with. We know that that in the early church of prior before, if if the Pharisees said if any if anybody believes in this man, he is ostracized. He's thrown out of the synagogue. So these Jews had that have become Christians through faith in Jesus Christ, they already had troubles. They already had trials. It was hard for them. And yet he's also writing to Christians everywhere because he says in verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. We'll read a little bit. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all, liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wow, it will be given to him. But there's a precedent for that. And we see that in the next verse, real quick. But let him who asks in faith with no doubting, For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. So James is writing. As one who knows what it's like to have denied the Lord who have not believed in him. And he starts out with the most practical thing that a Christian must face, and that is trials. He's a bondservant writing to people who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be a bondservant. You know, there's there's several different ways of looking at this. You know, remember back in the Old Testament when when after the, the, the seven years and they released slaves, there some slaves that didn't want to leave. They wanted to stay there because they realized that their life was was enriched. They realized that it's not going to get better than this. They realized that they're loved and they're cared for and what they would do is they would go to the doorpost or whatever and they would take an all and, uh, boom, drill a hole right through the the lobe of the ear, signifying that these slaves were bought and owned by the one they claimed to be their master. James was just that type of servant. You cannot read his writings and his word. God had penned through this man uh, saying that I need and I respond to best my servants that obey me explicitly. Let me say that again. God responds to, and he acts in favor to those who respond in obedience to him. It's all over the word of God. But let me, let me, let me get into that whole, preface that whole idea as we go on. My brethren, count it all joy when you encounter or when you fall into various trials. When you fall, you will fall into these trials. It's not if, it's when. That's one thing that we need to understand as Christians. We are living in a hostile world. We are living in a world that rejected Jesus Christ. It has not gotten any better. The Bible says it's gotten worse. We are living in a world that has flooded and is getting flooded more and more according to John, the spirit of the Antichrist. This world hates Christ. And we are his possessions. We are his representatives. So it's not if the trials come, it's when they come. But God wants to develop the attitude of joy in us. And this is the result of the positive work the Lord does through them. Through us. Counter all joy when you fall into various trials. We're going to see as we go on that trials produce joy. Trials produce patience. Trials produce maturity. You are not going to grow any other way in the Christian life. You can get all the knowledge you want. All the knowledge you want. But you are not going to grow in Christian maturity until you realize that trials are going to come your way. Who is the head of our life? Who is Whose palm of the hand do we rest in? let the wind blow where it will. It's going to. And the fallacy of, of, of this, this make-believe, plastic, apostate church is, wait a minute. Wind? Trial? What? No. That's what the, that's what the devil would say. That's what the false prophets of old said. Hey, safety and safety and peace and peace. And God, for example, Jeremiah said, No, you tell them no. There is no peace. There is no safety. They're false prophets. I didn't send them. It's the same today. Trials will come, brethren. But God wants to produce Joy in the fact that these trials are coming, and don't look at them as a thorn that's going to hurt you. Look at it as a thorn that's going to produce something in you. And that's not only joy, but that's going to be patience. How can we have joy falling into various trials? There's an old man who once lost everything. Everything. And he seemed to be joyous to the point of people were saying, this man is a little bit mad beside himself. What's your secret? The man said, I am overjoyed to see what the Lord is going to do next in my life. I am overjoyed to see what God is going to bring out of what you people call tragedy. But he's got me in the palm of his hand. I want to see what what God is going to bring. And when God works in his life, that produces joy. But the joy is produced when, we're, when patience is growing. Look at this. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials or temptations. Trials, we're looking at the outward appearance. Temptation is in the inward man. My tempting is to go somewhere else. My tempting is to get mad. My temptation is to fret and whine and, and worry The trials are coming. What's that producing in my life? And is it producing patience or is it producing worry and whining and complaining? And I'll tell you what, nobody can look at the word of God. It's like Mike said today, and I love it. It's a mirror. It's a mirror. And are you going to look at it? And are you going to say, Lord God? I just encountered a trial the other day, and what did I do? I didn't allow it to do its work in me. I didn't allow it to show what was in my heart. We're going to read a a great uh, passage today um, if we get there from Deuteronomy about that, the testing. God doesn't have joy in making us suffer. God has joy in seeing what the suffering is going to produce. So, Count it all joy when. I think some of these apostate churches replace the word when with if. Count all joy if you fall in trials. No, it's when. You will fall into trials. Trials will come your way. But God wants to produce joy out of these trials. Look at verse 3. Knowing knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. It is the approving, brethren, by testing and trials, that the maturing Christian learns victory in these, and this produces spiritual growth. Want spiritual growth in your life? Submit. You want to have victory? Submit. Do you profess to be Christ? Submit to anything. Let him do, let him be the Lord of your life. Let him do whatever he wants to you Let him allow whatever to come into your life. Is it hard? Yes. Whoever said the Christian life was easy? Jesus put it this way. There are two roads. There's the broad road that's easy, and all false religion is on it, and all the apostate church is on this big, right road. Apostate meaning they have rejected, revealed truth. Oh, surely God wouldn't do that to me. Surely God wouldn't allow that to happen to me. I just bought this home, and I love it. It burned down the other day. Why would God do that? It's easy. To talk. Talk is cheap. Do we profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we need to understand that He has everything lined out for us. Everything. He allows things to happen for our good and His glory. Please remember that. That's the Christian life. That's the control God has in our life. He does everything and he allows everything. That compasses all things for our good and his glory. So when, brethren, the trials come, we can we know it's for our good. We know something's coming out of it. So we we can learn the art of joy because the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is knowing that Jesus is not ever going to leave us or forsake us. The joy of the Lord is knowing that Jesus never sleeps or never slumbers. God has everything under control. God lives outside of time, and yet we know he pierced pierced time. So we're full of joy when trials come. Knowing that the testing produces patience, again in verse 3, patience. Listen, those Christians whom God can use the most are those whom God has caused to pass through the fiery trials of life the most. Remember that. Patience. Well, is patience a virtue? I don't know. Let's look. We know, I all know, in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Well, we know that the evidence of the, of the flesh, we know there are adultery, fornication, lewdness and cleanness, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of anger, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, strife, and the like. But we know that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It's peace, long-suffering, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, (laughs) self-control. And we know it goes on to say, those that have been crucified to Christ have crucified the passions in the flesh. It takes somebody that knows God to be developed by God, to be changed by God, to be led by God. But when trials come in, as they will come in, the joy that God is going to produce in us, fruit, patience. But look at verse 4, let patience have its perfect work or mature work. Mature and complete is the attitude here. I want to be complete. I'm complete in my in my, uh My standing with God, Paul says that I've been complete in Him, Colossians. We have a complete standing. But I need reality in my life that if I'm going to be effective and people are going to see the reality of the risen Christ in my life, then it's going to produce fruit in my life. That you made perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Perfect and complete. And before we go on to this next section, I I need to ask you. Are you joyous today? No matter what your circumstances are. No matter what your circumstances are. God wants to produce in you a joy that transcends all understanding. Because Paul elaborates on this. See, we all, we need to start taking the New Testament as a collective whole. Remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4? And I know some of you do, because I was talking to uh, someone in here the other day. I won't mention their name. But... Their family, uh, one of their family favorite scriptures were in Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing. Or if you're reading the King James, be careful for nothing, which I like. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let me request, being known to God. God, I need food. God, I need a house. God, I need this. God, I need that. He knows your needs. That's what supplication means. We bring our needs in thankful, humble submission to God, knowing that we will be fed with that food that is convenient for us, back in Proverbs. So be anxious or careful for nothing, but with everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And what does uh, it say next? And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds to Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. So it's something that it produces a humility, a patience, an, a, a, a joy, a grounding, and then he says, if this basically isn't yours, or isn't you seeing this in life, look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and, repro- and without reproach, and it shall be given to him. Does it say that if we have all perfect standing, all perfect understanding of things, we can come to God? Does it mean that we have to be a, uh, an outstanding citizen or something in the church? No, it just says that we, if we lack wisdom, no matter what our social standing is, no matter what our position is in the world, we can come to God because we lack wisdom in these things. I wrote a few things down. Listen to this. If any of you lacks wisdom, well, in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 2 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. Proverbs 2, 7 says, He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. Proverbs chapter 3 says, Happy is the man who finds wisdom. And my favorite, Proverbs, uh, the fourth Proverb 7th verse, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom and with all thy getting, get understanding. And what is that wisdom and understanding? We need to understand God. If we profess to know this God, then it must produce something. But we don't. We want to ask without doubting. We want to ask in absolute assurance, because the writer of the Hebrews says and remember in Hebrews 11, but without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We lack these things, we come to God and we ask for wisdom. And I'll tell you what we're like when we doubt. We're like the wave of the sea tossed and driven by the wind. We need to ask in faith. Verse six, what does that involve? Faith involves receiving God's word, all of God's word as absolute truth. All of it. Because we learn God through the complete written word of God how do we know that God created the heavens and the earth? The first thing that's attacked by this world system? In the beginning, God created. How do we know God is a God of mercy? Through the Bible. How do we know God's a God of judgment? Through the Bible. How do we know who God is like? Through the Bible. Remember our passage in John, or excuse me, Jeremiah 9 23. That we might know God, is a God of loving kindness. Of mercy, he says, in these things I delight, says the Lord. We need to receive God's word, and all of God's word is absolute truth. All of it. Number one. Asking in faith, number two, means living day to day dependently on his word. We find that out as well. But way back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God wants us to live and believe all of his word, every bit of it. Maybe that's some reasons why some people that you know that, that, are, that are struggle all the time, that can't seem to ever get a grip on their Christian life. It's like a wave driven and tossed by the wind. Paul says the same thing about the church in Ephesians chapter 4 about the man teaching about the maturity. The maturity of the Christian. Count on all joy, my brethren, knowing that the testing, let the patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfectly complete or mature, lacking in nothing, Paul says that we must submit to those that God has sent and through his word that grows to maturity. Why? He says the same thing in chapter 4. He says in verse 6 here that you won't be tossed to and fro. You're solid on the word of God. So whatever comes your way, you're solid. Job had that kind of keen understanding when when we get the first couple chapters of Job. When when the Sabrins the, the came out, they were raiders and they, they killed a lot of the servants when the wind came out and they and it destroyed the home and killed his his kids and so on and so forth. The Bible says, and all these things Job didn't sin, even to the point of his wife saying, Just curse God and die. Job made an astounding statement. He said, Should we receive good from the Lord and not adversity? It's not the fact, brethren, that if the trials are going to come, they're going to come. Let's settle it now, right now, in our minds and in our hearts, that when these trials come, the first thing we're going to do is not go, why? But Lord God, I am yours. Your Bible, your word says that all things are done for my good and your glory. Fill me with joy and anticipation of what you are going to do. To uplift the Lord Jesus Christ in my life. Because let me tell you, when we're getting together, the world's falling apart. Look at verse 7. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything. The one that doubts, you know, goes to and fro. He's a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. And she you see the correlation here? This is how we read the majority of the Proverbs. We see a contrast between the good and the bad, the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the evil. We see a man who counts it all joy, who's being produced. This life is being produced, and the fruit is coming through trials and tribulations. He lacks wisdom. He asks of God. He doesn't doubt. Because the double minded man is unstable in... Does the Bible say in verse 8 in some of his ways? No, it says in all of his ways. But let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Isaiah chapter 66, the Lord says through Isaiah, But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. See, the problem is not that a lot of people can't achieve this because it's open to everybody. But the problem is that most people that procl- profess to have some knowledge of the Bible, they don't know what's in the Bible. They don't read it. They don't study it. The Bible says that we're to study and show ourselves approved unto God, to be diligent. My, You know, it's all through the Word of God. I received that Word and it became more than my necessary food. Job said that, and Job's also one that we quoted earlier. I receive thy word more than my necessary food. Jeremiah, who we quoted before, said, I have received that word, and it's the joy and rejoicing of my heart. We've gone over this before. But see, it's the word of God. How do we know what God's like? His word. A double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, doesn't have the word of God operating in his life. He doesn't go to the Word of God for every answer. He doesn't go to the Word of God for his nourishment, and feeding in the morning or in the afternoon or whenever he has, uh, that God has given him time to get into his Word. He chooses other things to do. What is your primary thing to do every day? Is it to get into the Word and fellowship with him? I think there would be a lot of more stable Christians if we would just get into the Word of God to know Him. So that when we see the trials coming, we know that God has either caused this trial for my edification and my good and my growth, or He has allowed this trial for my edification, my good and my growth. Either way, it reaches my person, because God, for one reason or another, has allowed it. Now if you can't accept it then you need to get in the word and find out if what I'm saying is right because that's what the Bible teaches. Verse 9 says let the lowly brother huh. glory in his exaltation. The world does not looks at that exactly in reverse. The lowly brother is the guy that's down on the bottom. He's the one that you say, go and sit down on my footstool. But here, you come and rise yourself up. He's the one that the world looks at that says, if you're poor and destitute, then you know what? I have no need for you. The Lord says, I have need of that. I can use a man that's poor in spirit. I can use a man that's contrite in heart. I can use a man that understands his lowly position. That one I can use. And if you don't think that that is a viable, check this out. Wow, this is exciting. Remember First Peter chapter five. Peter echoes this same thing when he's talking about the roaring lion. He says, "Therefore, humble yourselves." This is First Peter five. You're taking notes, verse six and on. Therefore, humble yourselves. Under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So God's going to exalt the humble. God's going to exalt the one that says, Lord, I am at your disposal. I'm a poor and needy man, David said. God can use that man. He's going to exalt you in due time. But he says, you know what? You need to cast all of your care upon me. All of it. Not some of it. All of it. I want you to watch and be vigilant because you know what—you have an adversary that he's going to look and roaring about, seeking your, to devour you and hurt you and destroy you. But resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings we experience. But listen to what God says. He says, "But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, perfect." There's that word again. Perfect, mature, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And then verse 11 says, To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. That's our precedent. Remember? Our good and his glory. Peter says that right here. God's going to establish you. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to mature you. He's going to settle you all to his glory. And that comes through trials. It comes through heartache. Who of us here has not had heartache? I mean heartache. Why does God allow that? <laughs> oh, good. Wow. Is not God the God of all wisdom? Does he not know you better than you know yourself? He knows you inside and out. Every fiber and every cell that's pulsating through your body, is there because of him. He knows everything. Wow. Man of low degree. Verse 10 says, but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field, he will pass away. You know, I don't have time to go through We'll get there probably when we get to Psalm 9091. But the brevity of life, the Bible is full of it. Why? It admonishes us to realize that this life is so brief. And the smokescreen of the world will cloud it with worry, griping, complaining, undue concern, and so forth. We're called to take this life and look at it the way the Bible says. It is brief. It is here today, it is gone tomorrow, literally. It's like the flower of the field. I was reading a commentary of one man who spent several years of his life uh, in the foothills of uh, Israel, and obviously taken from from other historic events. In a lot of the foothills in, in that part of the country, the flower would come up when the sun would come up, or excuse me, right before the sun would come up, in the cool of the day. Once that sun came up, that flower much probably like dandelions or something would wither away. What an appropriate illustration that in the morning dew of our life so to speak, we that's where the seed of all of our learning happens. When we're young and growing that's when the, that's when we learn to trust when we learn of all the things. they say by, by the man by the time a child is seven between seven and ten years of age he learns. The rock, or the bedrock, in other words, of how his character is going to be. But not when the word of God comes in. Because that's what being born again is all about. We are born again when we receive the very nature of God, and God comes to live inside of us we regenerate regenerated, and now we have a transformed mind and the renewing of our mind, and we look at the things of God, and one of the things that we need to look at today is trials. Because he says in verse 11, No sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat that it withers the grass and its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in all his pursuits. Listen, brethren, it is while he is engaged in his business pursuits and travels that he's struck down. It's while he's pursuing this that he's struck down in death or tragedy. Think about that. Wow. What are you pursuing? He's going to fade away in all his pursuits. Mm-hmm. But we see the antidote in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, or trials, or testings. I love the word temptation and trials. Again, because the trials are the outward uh, manifestations of what's happening, and that the temptations, a lot of times, are the inside trials of what we're going to do. What are we going to do when trials come in? Are we going to fret about it? Are we going to worry ourselves about it? Jesus talked a lot about worry. If you want the worry chapter, read, read Matthew chapter 6. He ends with the fact of saying, sufficient out of the day is its own troubles. And how many of us worry what's going to happen 10 years, 10 days in the future? Worrying is really the temptation to say, God, you don't know what you're doing. If you did know what you were doing, how could this have happened? We see that when, when Lazarus died, and Mary and Martha said this, said that exact thing. If you'd only would have been here, Lord, your timing's off. What, what, what were you doing? You should have been here when you were over there. You should have been dealing with my problems instead of Aunt John or Aunt Mary's or whatever. He, they were questioning, and Jesus said, Did I not tell you? If you would believe, you would see the glory of God. Did I not tell you this? Another perfect example of he does everything for our good and his glory. Do you not realize that after that, Mary and Martha's faith was solidified more and more? They grew that he knows everything. He stayed away on purpose for their growth in God's glory. And by the way, that's a perfect example of of how we as Christians view the rapture of the church too, you know? When he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. That's what he's going to do. The trump of God, the voice of the archangel. Boom. But it's always, you can look all through the Bible and see where God is doing this. So, what a fallacy it is to worry and gripe and complain about our circumstances. But we should have absolute joy. Do you want to grow in Christ? Who doesn't? I do. One of the most miserable things, not only to see, but miserable for them personally, is a lukewarm, stunted, non growing Christian. They're frustrated, they're not stable. They certainly have not the joy of the Lord operating in their life, and they sure are a very effective witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, but to one that learns the avenue of joy through trials and trusting in this God who has everything perfectly under control. What we need today in the church, as Walter Martin said, is boldness. We need people that will stand up and realize this Bible is either 100% true or it is 100% false. It's not 99% true. It's not 80% true. It is 100% true. And if it is not 100% true in your life, then you need to ask the Lord to open your eyes because it is all true. And God said an amazing thing, that I will never fail you. I will never fail you. God has never failed once. The only person that has a perfect track record since Adam is God. Man certainly doesn't. (laughs) There is never a perfect track record in this universe but God. Never failing, never tiring, never being who he is. Boy, I wish I could be that to my wife all the time. The same always I strive for that. But there's only one who's been that way from the beginning of time, and that's God. He's never failed. And this is his written word. It never fails. I'll end in verse 16. We'll end here in a few minutes. I think some of us whether here or on the internet or contemplating that for the first time, these things. This is real Christianity. <clears throat> but he says in verse 12: blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Now, blessed in the Bible (laughs) not only means that we are we have been given an indescribable gift we have a favor of God on our life but we're we're in a position that the world envies we're in a position that, that people look at well, the Amplified describes it as ha- most happy and, and to be envied. A blessed person is somebody who has received something that, that they don't deserve. They have a position that they don't deserve. That position will not fade away, but that they are sitting under a wellspring of life that will never ever run dry. That's a blessed person of God. All of the sins, all of our sins are forgiven. Our well never runs dry. It will always produce fruit. And in the midst of the darkest times in life, sometimes Christ's light shines the brightest. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. That he who walks in darkness Or he will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. That doesn't mean some of the times. That means all the time. We have the light of life all the time. Thy word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Not some of the word, all of the word. blessed is the man who endures temptation. Wow. Does he endure it on his own strength? No, we've seen the preceding 11 verses. He does not endure it on his own strength. He has an anchor and he knows who really is his Lord, his master, who really has the hand on his life You know, I think it's an amazing part of a time in a Christian's life when it comes to the point he realizes that, you know what, I don't have control of my life. And if I do have some control of my life, I'm basically being a traitor. Because Jesus has complete control. Look at that verse 13. Let no one, when he is tempted or tested, Saying, I am being tempted by God. Now, testing and tempting, okay? We have tests come our way. Tests come our way. Sometimes God allows that. But God never tempts. This is in regard to evil. He never tempts us to squirm out any other way. And we know that for sure by, mark this down, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, will tell you Paul is saying the same thing, but from God word to man word. He said, no temptation has fallen you, such as is common to man, but God will provide the way of escape. But here we're saying that God doesn't tempt anybody with evil. But let no one say, hey, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. God pushes no one into a corner. God doesn't do anything to, to, to incite a sinful reaction from somebody. We know that by look at verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. God sometimes does allow Christians to undergo trials and testings. Again, for the purpose of perfecting His faith and purifying his heart, we'll get into that a little bit, the purifying effect. Did you all know that trials does, has a purifying effect? It allows us to, show us, again, Mike's mirror, it, it shows us what's really in our heart. That's, what tri- that's another benefit of trials. It shows us what's really in our heart. Are we trusting God, or are we worrying? It's like our antidote. If you are trusting, you're not worrying. If you're worrying, you're not trusting. Worrying is an affront to God, I'll tell you that right now. Harold Lemzell writes this. <laughs> I love that. Harold Lemzell says, When believers fall through temptation, it often occurs because they walk into it themselves. They are so careless and so ill-prepared for their spiritual warfare that they may fall into temptation unrestrained by God, for this reason we are constantly to pray, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew chapter six. But I love that. They often have fallen to it themselves. And we're gonna see we're gonna see why in verse 14. I have used this quote so much in my life, and is so biblical. Because it says, again, I'll repeat it, they are so careless and so ill-prepared for their spiritual warfare that they may fall into temptation unrestrained by God. They're careless. They're ill-prepared. They have no idea, what we read, it. Peter says, you know what, the trials are going to come, but not only that, you have an enemy that's going to really lambaste you with that. You better be prepared, and we be prepared by the Word of God and knowing Him. Each one, verse 14, is tempted
1: when he was drawn away
0: by his own desires and enticed. Think about that. What that means is the tempted here and drawn away means the provoking, the snaring of trials, the provoking. So you know who you are. When God is talking about your own desires and what entices you and what ensnares you. You need nobody to point those out to you. If you are a Christian, you know. And enticed. We also know by the Proverbs 18 it says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and safe. You know, I can be out in the midst of a storm, and I can see a tower right there, and I know that there's safety there, and I can run to it. But unless I get into it, I'm going to be battered by the storm. We need to trust God that when all else is falling apart around us, He's that strong tower, that we run into it and are safe. Again, Proverbs 18. James, read with the book of Proverbs, is is really a wonderful understanding of wisdom, practical wisdom for everyday living in the Proverbs. What's it like to be a Christian? How come I'm going through these things? What are you tempted about? What draws you away? Is it the temptation of work? Money, power, lust, being on the internet, on sites you shouldn't be on. What happened? Because it says in verse 15, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. See, it's not temptation that is sin. It's what we allow temptation to do in our life that becomes sin, if we ward off temptation by coming to God as our strong tower and entering into it and being safe, temptation is just something that's just that, a temptation. That's not evil. Jesus was tempted. We're all tempted. It's what we do with it. When your desire has conceived, it brings forth, or excuse me, birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's what sin is. Let me tell you something right now, a practical thing to do for some of these men. When you're going down the street and you invariably see somebody that you know that is going to be tempting or something, look the other way. Develop that habit. Look the other way. Get some discipline in your life, men, and look the other way. When you get on that Internet, men, and you're tempted to go to those sites, shut it off. It is a bigger problem than you think because it entices you away from God. What else entices us? Alcohol. Alcohol ruins more lives than any substance known to man. It's been that way. Why do you think when you have one beer, you're tempted to have another one? Why do you think that is? It entices you. And I'm not I'm not saying you can't... I'm not saying that having a glass of wine or a beer is wrong. I'm not saying that. But you know within your heart, I know personally myself, I am a man driven... by what I want. I have a very addictive nature. Am I going to be addicted to the Word of God? Am I going to use that drive and that desire for the Word of God and for the things of God? Or am I going to allow my addictive nature to take over? Listen, if I hadn't allowed my addictive nature to take over, I'd weigh 500 pounds. I love to eat. I used to love to drink beer. I'm not saying that those things are wrong in themselves. But if you have an addictive nature and you know it, that the Proverbs say that a man who directs his spirit is mightier than one who takes a city. You need to start taking control. And that control comes when you allow Christ to have everything in your life. And then those things won't be a hindrance anymore. You won't be hindered and hampered and washed away. Because see verse 16, and I'll end here, says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Sin is utterly sinful. It's deceiving. Our enemy is called the deceiver. Spirits are deceiving. Why do you think that alcohol is called spirits? It produces another mindset when you get inflamed by it. Why do you think that lust takes control? Your mind gets inflamed by it. Whether that's lust for women or it's lust for money or whatever, it gets inflamed by it. So when you're inflamed on something, when these trials and everything come in, you're going to be a double-minded man. You're going to be unstable in all your ways. You're not going to be able to stand. And your mind is ensnared by sin. And if it conceives, it will bring for death. And the Bible says that Jesus died to destroy the works of the devil. And he had control of death because that's what sin does. Practical? We're only on the first 16 verses of chapter 1. This is an amazing document if you will. Five chapters of practical living as a Christian, as one who knows God. Wow, we need to well consider what we what we do. We need to well consider what happens in this life. Because in verse 12, it says, blessed is the man who endures temptation because when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those that love him. He's promised the crown of life. The crown of life in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 is promised to the persecuted overcomers, the crown of life. Listen to this. When we sit there and we think to ourselves that we can do this on our own, we can't do this on our own. And all I'm asking you today is to consider this as I close. If you consider yourself a Christian and call yourself a Christian, are you allowing God to take control of your whole life? (laughs) Are you allowing God to take control of your whole life? And that includes your thought life. What do you think about? Are you full of resentment and anger? Are you full of bitterness? Paul says this, and I'll close with this quote from 2 Timothy four seven. He says, I have fought the good fight. It's a fight. I have finished the race. It's a race. It's a course. Paul says in Acts chapter 20 that he has finished the course that God has set for him with joy. But he says here, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith. And finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness again, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will deliver to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearance. Listen, don't be afraid to give everything you have to the Lord. Your children, your house, your finances, your future, your wife, your husband. Sometimes that's the hardest. Because Satan will hit everything nearest and dearest to you the most. That's part of spiritual warfare. Whatever is the most tenderest in your life, that's where your enemy is going to hit And if you have a gap in your armor, watch out. God has given you everything. The Word of God, which is the sword that he's teaching you to wield effectively. He's given you the breastplate of righteousness. He's giving you the helmet of salvation. He's giving you all these things that you may mature. But let me tell you this one thing, and one thing alone. And Cam, please pray after this, as God will hit everything, or excuse me, Satan will aim at everything that's nearest and dearest and most tenderest in your life. But God be the victor in that. Can't, would you pray? Thank you, our Father in heaven for the testings and trials that come our way. We've been uh, well instructed. Your word is very clear uh, that we are to believe things that I say That belief expresses itself in our obedience to you Uh, when it comes to the things that we find in your word. We pray that we respond to you in faith and obedience when the testings come our way. We thank you for uh, Christ our Savior.